Hey, let's open up Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. We're going to read our passage, pray, and then dive right into our teaching, okay? So this is the Word of God through the Apostle Paul. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of God. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you speak to us. We thank you for this opportunity to come and worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God, we pray now that you would send your spirit into our hearts, that you, Holy Spirit, would open our eyes to these great things, that we would understand the great privilege it is to be called heirs with Christ and children of God adopted into your family. And we pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So we've been looking at the book of Romans, which, you know, we pretty much know the book of Romans was written in the first century. It was written in probably the year 57 AD. And one thing we know about Romans is that this letter was sent by Paul to a church that he didn't know. He actually didn't know anybody that was in the congregation in the Roman church. But what we've seen in looking at Romans is that Paul really does have a real heartfelt concern for this church. And his concern is this, that the church in Rome would be grounded in truth, that they would be grounded in truth. He wants to make sure that what they believe, what they're trusting in, and what their faith rests upon is true. And so it's for that reason, you know, we've been calling this sermon series Basic Christianity because in the letter of Romans, Paul really is laying out the foundational and bedrock doctrines and teachings of Christianity. And that's important, right? Because you know, if you follow Jesus for some time or any amount of time, you know that God does have us believe in certain things, things about God, things about himself, things about humanity, things about uh, the world, things about the past, things about the future and how we should live in the world. And what we've been saying in this series is that we often have this tendency to separate our knowledge about God with a relationship with God. But what we've seen throughout Romans is that these two things are not separated. In fact, a knowledge about God always leads to a real life-giving relationship. Knowledge and relationship go hand in hand, in other words. So, for instance, my daughter Lainey, she's four years old, uh, our, our second. You know, I know certain things about Lainey specifically because I have an intimate and close relationship with her. In fact, I know things about Lainey that nobody else does because I have a relationship with her. So you might not know it, but my wife and I were from Colorado, but Lainey sometimes talks as if she's from Boston. Right? This is one of her little quirks, right? So she'll say things like the other day she was grabbing all of her teddy bears and she said, I'm their owner. These are my teddy bears. They're my, I'm their owner. 
Or if there's a car parked in the yard, she'll say there's a car parked in the yard. <laughs> and it's a little bit troubling, too, because I'm thinking, hey, Lainey, did, did, do you have a Sam Adams before you woke up this morning? <laughs> it's the Boston Logger, in case you didn't know that. She also says has this tendency to make up these words. They sound super intellectual too, like conclusorative and, and infernational. And you ask her, what does conclusorative mean? And she says, conclusorative means conclusorative. And you say, yes, that is good. That is very good. The, the point is this though. We all know this, right? I know things about Lainey because I have a relationship with her because knowledge and relationship go together. Likewise with God, when we're studying the basics of Christianity, our goal is that we would be growing in an intimate, life-giving knowledge of God that grows our relationship with him. That's the goal. That's the goal. And this morning, Paul speaks for the very first time about this very precious teaching of the Bible known as adoption. Adoption, meaning this idea of being adopted into God's family the idea of having God as our father, the idea that we as followers of Jesus are his children. J.I. Packer, he's considered one of the best theologians of the 20th century, at least one of the most influential. He said this about being a child of God. He said, quote, being a child of God is the highest privilege that Christianity offers. The highest privilege. Meaning, to be a child of God is a distinct honor and privilege given exclusively to those who follow Jesus. What a privilege that is. And now we would say, hold on, well, wait, aren't all people children of God? Isn't every person a child of God? And I want to be clear this morning, to be sure, there is a sense in which that's true. There is a sense in which all people are God's offspring. All people are created by God. All people are made in God's image. And in that sense, yes, God is our creator and therefore we are his children. But there's another sense in which we are born into this world alienated from God, separated from his family. So I remember this debate that we were having in grad school. We were actually talking about this passage here in Romans chapter 8. And, and we were talking about this idea that, well, God was the universal father of all. That Christianity was about the universal fatherhood of God. And everybody was kind of resonating with this idea. But I remember one student raised his hand, and I'll never forget this. You know, we were looking at this passage. He raised his hand and he said, well, wait, if we're all born children of God then why does Paul say we have to be adopted? And he had a point, right? Right to be adopted assumes that we're not God's children by birth. It actually assumes that we're born outside of God's family and we're separated from him and we're alienated from him. And though God is our creator, we're actually born estranged from him and we need to be adopted into his family. Jesus, I remember, uh, you know, I was reading through the Bible one of the very first times I was reading through the Gospel of John, and Jesus had similar words to what Paul's saying here. He's talking to a group of people, and they don't believe in who Jesus has said that he is, and Jesus has really hard words. These are some of the hardest words that Jesus says, but it says, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. 
For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And, you know, on my first read of that, I was really unnerved. So I had to go back and I had to say, well, hold on. Is Jesus saying this? Is the context maybe something that I don't understand? But it actually means what it says. Jesus is saying that we're not born into into the kingdom and the family of light. We're actually born in the kingdom and family of darkness, what the Bible calls the flesh. That's what the Bible means when it's talking about the flesh that were born outside of God's family. And that's why Paul speaks this morning of adoption. Adoption, the idea that we need to be brought into God's family and actually remade God's children. It's not just the Bible that speaks about this, by the way. This idea that we're born with this certain hostility toward God and this alienation from God. Uh, The book by Robert Louis Stevenson, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, is a great example of this. If you know the story, it's the story of the man. His name is Dr. Jekyll. And he notices in himself that he has this great capacity for good. But also he notices gnawing on his conscience is this great capacity for evil. And so he devises this potion that he drinks. And at night he becomes Edward Hyde, which is just his evil nature separated from his good nature. And his good nature remains Dr. Jekyll. So he drinks this potion, and these two natures are separated. And even though at night he's doing these vicious things like beating people up for getting in his way and actually committing murder at one point, in the day he's committing tremendous good. He's doing wonderful things. He's contributing to charity. He's nice to his friends. He's gracious and kind to his patients. And Once he has these natures separated out, finally it's at this turning point in the book, Dr. Jekyll is sitting in a park bench in New York City, and he's looking at all these people who are walking around the park, and Dr. Jekyll starts thinking to himself, and the book says, but, quote, as I smiled, comparing myself with the other men walking in the park, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of all of their neglect... It was at that very moment, in that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, nausea and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down, and I was once more Edward Hyde. See, Dr. Jekyll, his good nature, no matter how good it was, was still susceptible, and this is what I think Stevenson highlights so well in this book, is that even our good nature is often controlled by darkness, brokenness, and evil, and that it's, our good nature is regularly mixed with pride, egotism, a su- sense of self-superiority, and a disdain for others who don't act as virtuously and as good as we do. And it's all driving toward this point, right, that even the good things in us are tainted and are actually alienated from God, actually hostile to God. And the Bible says that's why we need to be adopted into God's family. Because deep down inside of us, we are actually alienated and estranged from God. So back to our passage in Romans 8. Back to our passage in Romans 8. Paul says this morning, or or I want to explore what Paul says this morning by just asking one question. One question, and it's this. What does it mean to be adopted? 
What does it mean to be adopted? What does it mean to be adopted into God's family and live as a child of God, growing in an intimate, life-giving relationship with God as our Father? And we're going to see two things. Paul says there's two things. We have certain obligations and we have certain privileges. Obligations and privileges. So first, Paul says we have an obligation, and we see it in verse 12. And he puts it this way. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, meaning we have an obligation, right, as debtors. We have this obligation. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So Paul says first obligation is a negative one, that we have an obligation not to live following the patterns of our flesh, the patterns of our sinful desires. We are not indebted to sin and we do not have to obey our sinful passions. And that's why Paul uses this term debtor. It's actually a very important term. Right, Because to be a debtor assumes that we owe something. And what Paul says here is that you are not indebted to the flesh. And you think of it this way, right? Every month I get a statement from BSI Financial showing me how much I owe on my 30-year mortgage. Right, And it has this number. I've only had this loan for like nine months, so the number's still very high. right? And it shows me... Because of my debt for the next 30 years, I have an obligation to pay that money back. I actually must pay it back because I'm indebted to BSI Financial for a significant amount of money. And Paul uses this language to illustrate, this language of indebtedness and obligation to illustrate that if you're in the family of darkness, if you're in the family of darkness, your relationship with the flesh, your relationship with evil, is a lot like the relationship between a master and a slave. That when our flesh tells us something to do, we are obliged to follow it. The flesh here is illustrated as this powerful master to whom you owe allegiance, to whom you're indebted, this powerful master who makes commands and obligates us to pay. And I was reading recently, this is an ABC article of a family that had adopted a child, had adopted this daughter who was just a couple uh, years old from Russia. They brought her back to the United States. And, you know, things were good to start out, but they found out very quickly um, that something was a little bit off with their daughter, that she would react in these horrible outbursts, that when the parents would enter the room, she would flee and scream and run into other rooms. And what they found out through uh, research is that this daughter's uh, mother and grandmother back in Russia both struggled with alcoholism and were actually abusive to their young daughter. And because of that, these girls had what's known as RAD, Reactive Attachment Disorder. And so even though this wonderful, precious little girl was separated by thousands of miles from this old family, separated by thousands, separated from an ocean, right, of this old family, she still had this tendency to fall back on the patterns of abuse, the patterns of living under the abusive treatment of her parents back in Russia. And what Paul is saying in this passage is that if you've been adopted into God's family, 
If you're in his family, then you're no longer a member of the family of darkness and you don't have to act out of those old patterns that mark a person who's a slave to the flesh. And this is key, right? Because in our culture, we're often told that our strongest feelings, our strongest desires, right? The strongest temptations and passions that are within us, those are the most true things about ourselves. In fact, those are what make us authentic, right? That if we live according to those passions, those temptations, then we're actually living an authentic, real, true life. Paul says, whoa, 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 hold on. As a child of God, that is emphatically not the case. By faith in Jesus, you're in a new family. You are under no obligation. You are not indebted to the passions and the feelings and the desires of your sinful flesh. In short, what Paul is saying is if you're a follower of Jesus, you can say no to sin. You can say no to sin. And now let me be clear, that does not mean that you can live a perfect life. If you think that's the case, then I'll talk to you in five minutes because I know what you're thinking about me. You cannot live a perfect life But what it means is that sin no longer has a mastery over you. As Paul said, right, you've received a spirit of adoption, not a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So you are not indebted to those passions of your sinful flesh. You are no longer a member of the family of darkness. So Paul says you're obligated first, right, negatively, to not live according to the passions of the flesh. But then positively, he says you have another obligation, And that obligation is to put to death the flesh. See that in verse 13. Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. To put to death the sinful nature that still seeks to influence us, that's our obligation. To fight and destroy sin that still lives in us, to put to death the deeds of the body. Anybody in here a youngest sibling, by the way? I'm a youngest sibling. Yeah, so we got quite a few. Uh, I have two older brothers. My brother Sean, he's about three and a half years older than me, and my brother Jeff, he's five years older than me. And growing up, they would always want to fight right? It was fighting about something. They were just taking out their anger of middle school out on me. So whether it was wedgies or, you know, noogies, whatever it was, I was the brunt of all of their violence. And I didn't want to fight, right? I didn't want to fight. They were stronger than me, but there was no way I was going to win. So I would try and keep my brothers and I would kind of fight like this, you know, like, oh, just don't hit me in the face, you know, I don't want to, I don't really want to engage you. And I'd be very passive. I was trying to really just hold off my brothers very passively. And I actually learned very quickly that you cannot fight passively, right? If I wanted my brothers to respect me, I had to throw punches. I had to get in there. And as a younger brother, that meant biting, kicking, whatever it took, right, to actively fight back. And similarly, that's the approach Paul says we have to take towards sin. Not treat sin passively, right? As if we can control it, hold it at arm's length. Just make sure sin doesn't hurt me or infiltrate me too much. No, Paul says as children of God, we're not to be passive, but we're to be actively fighting, combating, punishing, killing sin that's within us. To take sin and put it to death by the Spirit. I I love this. The Puritans used to have a wonderful word for this. Mortification. 
Oh, we just don't use words like that anymore. Mortify. And it sounds just like what it means, right? It means to destroy, slay, cut off life from. One author said, it is the ruthless, full-hearted resistance to the evil of the flesh. The flesh, our sinful nature, is to be actively mortified day after day after day as followers of Jesus, as children of God. And the part where we struggle with this is that we often don't treat sin as something that needs to be actively mortified, do we? We actually see sin as something that's a little bit more tame, something that's a little bit more gentle, something that isn't out to destroy us. But notice how the Bible speaks about sin. This comes from the very first pages of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And you'll remember the story. Adam and Eve have children. The firstborn is named Cain. The secondborn is named Abel. Cain, out of this ravenous jealousy over his brother Abel, brings him out into an open field where nobody's around, and he puts his brother Abel to death out of jealousy. And God approaches Cain, and he says this to Cain. These are the first words we hear God say about sin. He says, quote, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. That can also be translated, its desire is for you. And see, the idea here is that sin is like a ravenous, devouring, lying, crouching, waiting just for an inch, just a little bit of opportunity to pounce and devour and destroy you. So think about, okay, imagine you have a lion in your house, okay? You have a lion in your house. You have it in a cage. It's a nice cage, not exactly a kennel, you know, at least has iron on it. And what do we usually say? We say things like, well... This lion's not as bad as you think, right? This lion isn't that bad. I actually kind of like this lion. I understand why a lion might be dangerous living in your house, but not in my house, right? My lion likes me, and I kind of like my lion. So instead of killing the lion, which is what you should do, we end up indulging this lion, right? We throw it a fillet every now and again. We let it out sometimes thinking, oh, he's not going to bite me this time. We forget, though, that this is a ravenous lion whose nature is to destroy and kill. A lion can't be domesticated. It can't be controlled. It can't be held at arm's length. It can't be held back by a leash. No, it must be actively put to death every single opportunity you have. Men, if you think, if you think, You can hold lust back or somehow control lust. That is no better than going up to a lion's cage and saying, it's not going to bite my arm this time. Watch. Watch. It's not going to bite my arm this time. And then you go and click. Ah! Ah! You know, and it's all of a sudden it's biting your arm. And, you know, the police come 45 minutes later and you're saying, I don't know what happened. You know, I had it on a leash. I thought I could control it. I even put my arm out. Well, exactly. Why do you think about it bit your arm? The point being this, that sin, our only response to it is to actively put it to death and to mortify it as it remains in our hearts. We cannot domesticate it. And Paul even makes that explicit, right? Because in verse 13, did you notice he had two if-then statements? He said, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. See, sin, living by the flesh, leads to death. Death to sin, death to the flesh, leads to life. The full-orbed, relational, loving, joyful, abundant life that God has to offer. Because that life can only live in a heart that is actively putting death to the sin Jesus died to destroy. I love the quote of Ralph Venning. Ralph Venning was another Puritan. He wrote, quote, Sin promises like a God, but pays like a devil. Isn't that so true? Sin promises like a God, but pays like a devil. Sin is like a poetry degree. Right? You think... Oh, I'm going I'm I'm to study poetry. And you tell that to dad. Dad, I'm going to study poetry. And he's got this, you know, latent rage in his stomach that he's holding back. And you think right when you're in it, it seems so rewarding. It seems so fulfilling. You're studying, you know, Shakespeare and Maya Angelou. You're tweeting Maya Angelou and getting likes for it, right? Like the bird doesn't sing because it has an answer. It sings because it has a song. Click, like. And everybody's loving it. And then you get a bill the next day for $150,000 with a 4.30% interest rate. Because sin promises like a God and pays like a devil. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will experience the rich, abundant, life-satisfying life available that only comes to those who are in God's family. So back to our question, right? What does it mean to be adopted by God to live as his adopted child? Well, Paul says it means you have an obligation, not to the flesh, but to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And secondly, Paul says alongside these obligations are great privileges, great privileges. The first of which is that we have the privilege of calling God Father. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know, we can take this for granted. We gather here, we call God Father, we pray to God as Father. But think, if you were to go to the president's house, go to the White House, knock on the door, and you're let in, imagine you just start calling the president of the United States, Joey. Hey, Joey. How's it going, Joey? As if, you know, you are part of his family or you're an old college frat brother. This is the ruler of the free world. This is the president of the most powerful nation on earth, the one who holds the nuclear football, right? Who could destroy the world if he so choose. Now take that same concept and apply it to God. Who is God? Well, the Bible tells us God is the creator of the cosmos, the entire universe. Every single thing that exists in the cosmos was created by God simply by speaking. And we're told that he determines the numbers of stars and he knows them all by name. This is the God who, faced with the Red Sea, he split it into half, into two. He turned the Nile River into blood. All the water molecules, blood. Who rained fire and sulfur from heaven 
on Sodom and Gomorrah, the God who says, man shall not see my face and live, who the New Testament calls the consuming fire. And what do we call God? Father. Abba, Father. You know, in the Old Testament, the... Uh, the Feast of Yom Kippur, which was the Day of Atonement, it was the one day of the year where the high priest of God's people would go into this place called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, it was said that God dwelt there. God's presence was there. And they had this tradition that on Yom Kippur, they would go in and make atonement for the sins of the people. And they had this tradition where they would tie a rope around the high priest. And as the high priest went in, heaven forbid... The high priest should be smote by God and die. They had a rope so that they could pull him out so nobody else had to go in and die themselves. The message was twofold. God's holy. He is a consuming fire. And we are unholy. We are in the flesh. And we are not to presumptuously and flippantly approach God. But Paul says now... Through faith in Jesus Christ, we have the privilege of approaching God and calling him Father. Not a spirit of fear, not a spirit of tying ropes around our waist, not a spirit of slavery, but the spirit of adopted children who cry out to God as our heavenly Father. Because through faith in Jesus, well, the Bible says God no longer sees our sin, He doesn't see our unholiness. See, in the crucifixion of Jesus, God meted out his holy, all-consuming fire and wrathful judgment for our sin on his son, Jesus. He has punished his son in Jesus. Jesus' death was our death, and now God looks at us, and he sees his precious son and daughter. He sees his children, one to whom he embraces and doesn't push back, one to whom he brings into him instead of pushing away. You know, my daughter Jane has this horrible habit. She's two years old now, just about two years old. She has this horrible habit of waking up right about 6 a.m. And, you know, I'm getting ready in the morning. I'm taking a shower and I get out of the shower. I'm brushing my teeth and I'm sort of getting ready. And all of a sudden I hear Jane scooting around in our, in our room because Hannah has gotten, him and gotten her and put her in our room. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a moment where she notices dad's in the bathroom. So she'll go up to the bathroom and just say, dada, dada, dada. You know, I'm brushing my teeth. And at that moment, it doesn't matter what I have to do. I don't have to, if I have to shave, if I have to finish brushing my teeth, if I need mouthwash, if I need to put a shirt on, nothing stops me from opening that door and embracing my precious daughter with her big eyes. And she looks up to me and she says, yuck, 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 which is her two-year-old way of saying, I have a soiled diaper that needs to be changed. <laughs> and the moment's gone. But the point is that we have that same privilege of no matter what we have, no matter what sin we carry, no matter what we do or who we are, if we have faith in Jesus, then the consuming holy fire is now called our intimate heavenly father. And lastly, we see this final privilege that we're also heirs of Jesus' glory. 
Not only do we call God our Father, but we're heirs of his glory. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. You know, adoption in the ancient world, how it worked is if a man had an estate, but he didn't have a child to give it to, he would adopt somebody into his family. And that adopted child would receive all of the estate, everything that the estate of this person, every, everything that that person owned, all, belonged, all that belonged to the father was given to the adopted heir. And Paul says, here, in our adoption, not only are we children of God with Jesus, but we are co-heirs with Jesus. Meaning we will one day receive the estate of God. The cosmos will be ours. We will rule and reign with Jesus. And we're going to unpack this next week, what that means exactly. But what Paul means here, here's the greatest news about this, is we are heirs of the glory of Jesus. So that just as Jesus lives eternally right now without sin, we too will one day fully and finally have sin completely and totally mortified within us and sin will be destroyed. The sickness of sin will be healed and we will be glorified with him. But there's a provision. Did you notice the provision? There's a condition. Paul says, we will share in Christ's glory under one provision, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Why suffering? Why suffering? Why is that there? God, why would you allow and countenance your children to suffer? But don't you know, Paul actually links this idea of glory and suffering together. Even in the book of Romans, this is Romans chapter 5. He says, through him, that's through Jesus, we all have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So why suffering? Because suffering produces hope. Suffering now gives us hope for the life and glory which is to come. Because if we're perfectly content now, if you are perfectly content now, if you're perfectly satisfied now, if you're perfectly happy now, in a world filled with sin and a heart polluted by sin, then we'll be content to live strictly for now into all eternity. But if we are children of God, God wants to give us through suffering a hope that there is a greater day a greater eternity coming without sin, without darkness. And the family of darkness will actually ultimately be destroyed. And God will one day completely in that world remove the sickness of sin forever. And now if you have kids, you know this, right? That sometimes you have to inflict pain in order to remove sickness. You go to these like wellness checkups, and they all go the same way, right? You have to get the rotavirus shot, the hep B shot, the polio shot, the DTaP shot, all these different shots. And they always say to mom, mom, 
look into the baby's eyes, whisper to the baby, have this Band-Aid ready for the baby. And then what do they say to the dad? Dad, you hold that baby down. And I'm thinking, why? Why is she always the good guy? But I have this distinct privilege as a father that I know what's going into my child's arm is removing a potential life-threatening, deadly illness. And I would allow that so I could hear my child say, Abba, Father, for as long as I live. You know, I've been going, so for about six months now, I've, I've been a lot better. But, you know, about a year and a half before that, I was really uh, struggling with some really bad depression. Um, it had been so bad that, you know, I couldn't get out of bed most days, and um, I wanted to sleep all day, every day. And um, it had gotten so bad that I had these anxiety and these, these panic attacks to where, I knew right as I was about to go to bed at night, I could tell whether or not that anxiety would turn into enough of a panic attack where I wouldn't be able to sleep and I would be up until like 3 a.m. And as I was usually sitting there and I was thinking right before, you know, Hannah's going to bed, lights are off and I'm thinking it's just not going to happen and I'm not going to fall asleep. And I remember always asking, God, why are you doing this to me? Why am I going through this? And I would always reach for my Bible. I'd flick on the light. I would read Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. I would read, Through him we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God has poured out his love into our hearts through his Holy Spirit, who now lives in us. And I know my Heavenly Father was telling me in those moments, though you're suffering now, I have a sinless eternity for you. And I love you so much that I want to remove the sickness of sin. And now I can look back at that moment and I can say, I know God was healing, God was healing me through suffering of my pride, of my self-sufficiency, of my lack of thankfulness and gratitude toward him and my outright rebellion against him that thought I was the most important person in the universe. So back to our question, what does it mean to be adopted? Well, it means we have the privilege of calling God our father. And whether it be depression or illness or even death itself, we know God loves me he even suffered for me in sending his son Jesus. And God will one day remove the sickness of suffering from me completely so I can enjoy the rich, full life of a child of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great privilege that we get of saying that. That you love us. We're adopted into your family and that you are so committed to us that you're even willing to die on our behalf by sending your son, Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that it heals us from the sickness of darkness that is within us. God, draw us closer to yourself. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit that we might cry out to you 
and give us a boldness in approaching you that we could never earn on our own. Help us sing your praise now as we worship you. We ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.